By the end of 1966, the Cincinnati Police Department thought they had arrested and locked up the so-called Cincinnati Strangler. But did they have the right man? I am Bill Swafford, and this is Murderers in Ohio. So we got a killer on a run in Ohio. This is episode one of season two and the start of 88 counties of murderers in Ohio. 88 counties of murderers in Ohio is where I am challenging myself to find one convicted murderer, man or woman, from every county in the Buckeye State. I'm going to start this off with taking you to Hamilton County. Now, Hamilton County can easily be confused with the city of Hamilton, but they are not the same. The city of Hamilton is in Butler County, the next county north of Hamilton County. Hamilton County is in the far southwest part of Ohio. It sits by the Indiana State Line and by the Ohio River. Hamilton County is mostly taken up by the city of Cincinnati and the suburbs of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, of course, is the home of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cincinnati Reds. Just like all big cities, Cincinnati does have some unsafe neighborhoods. It has always been a growing city. For this episode, I am going to have to try and go back in time to the 1960s. The 60s, peace and love, the Vietnam War, and civil rights protest. I'm going to talk about the end of 1965 and the year of 1966. This is actually around a year, give or take a few months, before the professional football team Cincinnati Bengals was created. So, what I'm going to talk about happened before anyone ever heard of the Cincinnati Bengals. By the middle of 1966, a large part of Cincinnati's residents were in fear of an unknown killer. The media named this killer the Cincinnati Strangler. It all started in December 1965, and by December 1966, seven women would be dead. The women were strangled, and five of them were raped. A 29-year-old black man was arrested and charged with one of the murders. Even though the 29-year-old was not charged for the other six murders, the media and police said that the 29-year-old was, in fact, the Cincinnati Strangler. The death sentence that was handed down sparked riots across the country and exposed racism in a growing city. December of 1965, people had finished up with Thanksgiving and was getting prepared for the Christmas season. Winter would be starting to set in and Christmas lights would start lighting up the night. On December 2, 1965, the body of 56-year-old Imogene Harrington was found. She had been strangled to death. Law enforcement had no leads or suspects. The Cincinnati Police Department had no idea that this would lead to a year-long investigation and the possibility of a serial killer roaming the streets of Cincinnati. It would only be six short weeks before another body would be found. 58-year-old Lois Dat was on the phone with a friend. There was a knock on the door, and Lois got off the phone to see who was at the door. Lois would later be found dead. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death in her ground floor apartment. Law enforcement believes that the knock on the door was the killer. This would be the second woman found strangled and the first one that would be raped. The Cincinnati Police Department still had no leads or suspects on Imogene Harrington's murder. 
They were dealing with the same for Lois. They had no leads and no suspects. At this time, the Cincinnati Police Department did not place these two murders together. They were treated as two separate cases with two possible different killers. A few months would pass by and the weather would start to warm up. Law enforcement still had not solved Emma Jean Harrington's or Lois Dad's murders. On June 10th of 1966, law enforcement would discover another body. It was the body of 56-year-old Matilda Messer. Matilda had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death in the city park. Matilda had been walking her dog in the park before she had been attacked. Law enforcement knows this because the killer had tied Matilda's dog to a tree and left the dog unharmed. There was no leads or suspects for this third victim. This was the third woman who had been strangled and the second woman who had been raped. The three women were all above 50 years in age. Law enforcement started to see the patterns between the murders and started to think that maybe they were looking for one killer, not three. All this happened before murderers would be labeled as serial killers. The Cincinnati Police Department was now seeing that the killer had certain method of killing, strangling its victims. The victims were older ladies who possibly wouldn't put up that much of a fight with the killer, but they still had no idea what was driving the killer to do what he was doing or how he was picking out his victims. Law enforcement would soon get some leads, but those leads wouldn't come without another victim, the youngest victim to have come in contact with the unknown killer. August 14, 1966, Barbara Bowman had spent some time at a bar. Bowman had called the Yellow Cab Company for a cab to come take her home. The cab company put out a dispatch call, and a cab driver responded, and a cab would soon show up at the bar to pick up Bowman. Bowman got into the cab and gave the driver her address, and they soon left the bar. The cab driver had to have stopped the cab at some point. Two blocks from Barbara's apartment, the cab driver attacked her with a knife and stabbed Barbara seven times. The cab driver had taken off and left Barbara fighting for her life. The police showed up at the scene and Barbara died shortly after. The Cincinnati Police Department did get a small lead on the person who attacked Barbara. A witness claimed that a black man was driving the cab. The witness had even gotten a license plate number. The number was 186, the cab number. The cab did belong to the Yellow Cab Company, but it had been reported stolen hours before Barbara was picked up at the bar. Law enforcement at this time was unable to come up with any suspects. Also at this time, law enforcement did not group this murder with the first three victims. Barbara was younger than the first three victims, and she had been stabbed, not strangled. Newspapers were still talking about the first three murders. Newspapers liked to give out nicknames, and they came up with the name Cincinnati Strangler. The people of Cincinnati were starting to really worry about when the Cincinnati Strangler would strike next. The police department would create special programs to help identify the Cincinnati Strangler. Now I will move forward to October 11th of 1966. Law enforcement say that the 51-year-old Alice Hutchinson was the Cincinnati Strangler's fifth victim. One thing I'm having a problem with is the fact that I cannot find a cause of death on Alice. 
All of the other victims gave a cause of death, but not Alice. Panic was starting to take over Cincinnati. There was a huge increase in sales of door locks and weapons of all kinds. Women were scared to walk the streets at night. Police department announced to the public that they had come up with a special program to catch the Cincinnati Strangler. Bars and nightclubs were starting to close early to make sure people weren't out late at night. The city of Cincinnati even moved its Halloween trick-or-treat for the kids to a Sunday afternoon so the women and kids wouldn't have to be out during the night. I'm actually surprised that Cincinnati even had a trick-or-treat in 1966. On October 20th, another body was found. 61-year-old Rose Winstill was found beaten and strangled in her apartment. Things settled down a little after that, and nothing happened during the month of November. In December of 1966, the Cincinnati Strangler would strike again. On December 9th of 1966, the body of 81-year-old Lua Couric was found in her downtown apartment building. Lula had been beaten and then strangled with her own stockings. So I have found that at least five of the victims were strangled. The fifth victim, I could not find a cause of death. The fourth victim, the youngest victim, was not strangled. A knife was used. The seventh victim basically marks a year since the killings had started. During this time, the Cincinnati Police Department did try to do what they could to solve the murders. The police department formed a special squad of 22 officers. Those 22 officers were to investigate the seven unsolved murders. The police hotline would start to get 800 tips per day. The officers would investigate a thousand leads. Law enforcement would start pulling black men off the streets for no reason and put them in lineups. There was a tip about a brown and cream colored car that had been seen around a couple of the murder scenes. Police officers checked over 15,000 cars. After the last victim, the police department had received a call from a 22-year-old woman named Sandra. Sandra had told the law enforcement that she had been followed by a black man as she made her way to her car. Sandra said she was at the stairwell of her apartment when the black man attacked her and tried to rape her. Luckily, she was saved by a neighbor. Somehow it was determined that this attempted rape happened just a few hours before Lua Couric, the seventh victim, was attacked and strangled. Sandra and others were able to give a description of the man and also give law enforcement a license plate number. Shortly after that call, 29-year-old Postil Lasky Jr. would be arrested. Lasky was born in 1938 and was a resident of Cincinnati. Lasky was now the main suspect in all seven murders of the Cincinnati Strangler. Law enforcement did look into Lasky's background. Lasky was some kind of laborer. He had an apartment that he shared with a friend. Lasky didn't live there that long, though, before he was arrested. He actually lived with his mom before that in another part of the city. Lasky was a guitarist and played in a band. He wanted to make a career out of his music. Lasky had been in trouble with law before. Lasky had been charged in 1965 for attacking a woman. I don't believe that there was much of a charge because Lasky only got three years of probation. 
Investigators looked into Lasky's work history. They found that Lasky had worked for the Yellow Cab Company in 1962. Back at that time, cabs all used keys that were just alike. So that means if you had one key, you could start every cab in the company with just one key. Now here is the interesting part. Lasky drove cab number 186 when he worked for Yellow Cab Company. When Lasky had left the Yellow Cab Company, Lasky had taken a cab key and some other items. After Lasky was arrested, law enforcement had received a couple of more phone calls. One of the calls was from a 69-year-old lady named Della Ernst. Della told the police that Lasky had robbed her in October of 1966. There was a second call from a woman named Virginia. Virginia told police that Lasky had robbed her on September 21st in 1966. My question is, why did these ladies wait so long to call the police and tell them that? They knew that the city had a killer on the loose. Why not call the police and say, hey, I've been robbed? A little crazy, I don't know. Lasky ended up getting charged for Barbara Bowman's murder, the lady who had gotten a cab ride home and then had been stabbed to death. He was charged only based on the fact that he worked for Yellow Cab Company and he looked like a man that witnesses said that was the cab driver. Lasky had gone to trial and sat in front of an all-white jury. Lasky had five witnesses that said Lasky was at home the day of Barbara Bowman's murder. Lasky was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Now, the media and law enforcement are convinced that they had caught the Cincinnati Strangler, even though Lasky was not convicted of the other six murders. Law enforcement says Lasky is indeed the Cincinnati Strangler. There was no murders that happened after Lasky was arrested. Something like this happened in the 1970s in the Atlanta, Georgia, with the Atlanta child murders. Wayne Williams was convicted of killing two adults, Law enforcement labeled Wayne Williams as the Atlanta child murderer without convicting him of one child murder. I'm going to be honest. With everything that I've found, I have serious doubts that Lasky was the Cincinnati Strangler. I do have a few reasons for that. Besides Bowman, Lasky had four victims that law enforcement could verify Lasky as their attacker. They could verify their attacker because they were not murdered. Then you have Bowman's murder, the youngest out of the Strangler's victims. Bowman wasn't even considered to be one of the Strangler's victims because she had been stabbed, not strangled. Then there was the cab that was stolen during the murder. Why would he steal a cab from somewhere that he worked if he's done this before? It don't make sense to me, but that's just my opinion. I'm not saying that Lasky is innocent of Barbara Bowman's murder. I'm saying that what they do have on Lasky does not prove that Lasky is the Cincinnati Strangler. His family did not think that he was the Cincinnati Strangler either. His family believed that law enforcement was only looking to place the blame on someone to make the people of the city feel safe again. Lasky's family weren't the only ones who had a problem with the verdict. 
The black community was outraged that Lasky, a black man, was catching the blame for murdering seven white women. Riots broke out across the city of Cincinnati. Not only that, 150 riots across the country happened because of this case. The riots in Cincinnati got so bad that the National Guard was called in. One year before he was killed, Martin Luther King made a trip up to Cincinnati and tried to help and calm the violent riots. After the second night of riots, there had been 20 arrests made and 22 people injured. Firefighters took on 150 fires and had people throwing rocks at them while they tried to fight the fires. There was about a million dollars in fire damage. The newspapers from this time did nothing to help out the situation. I found an old article. The article read, The reason behind the riots are unclear. Black man posted Lasky was sentenced to death. Apparently had something to do with it. And I'm being nice here. I said black man. I didn't use the word that they use. Apparently back then writing was totally different. Now these are the words from the newspaper. You know damn well that that newspaper knew exactly what was going on and why it was going on. This goes to show that a person even back then couldn't even trust the media. The court system never tried Lasky as the Cincinnati Strangler. The media and law enforcement did. There was an appeal put in on Lasky's behalf, basically because the presumption of innocence was violated, basically meaning he was found guilty even before his court trial. Lasky's appeal was denied. In 1972, things would change for Postal Lasky. In June of 1972, the Supreme Court commuted Lasky's death sentence to a life sentence without parole. Lasky was moved around to various prisons throughout the state of Ohio. There is one thing I do not understand. I already said that Lasky ended up with life without parole. But one thing I did find says something that Lasky still applied for parole, but was denied every time. At some point, Lasky was forced not to apply for parole till 2017. Unfortunately, we may never know if Lasky was the real Cincinnati Strangler. Postil Lasky died on May 29th of 2007. And who knows if there's any evidence left for the murder cases that happened in 1966. If you're like me, and if you're not convinced that Postil Lasky was the Cincinnati Strangler, that means that there could be a chance that the real Cincinnati Strangler never got caught. So we got a killer on a run in Ohio. I have some time left in this episode, so I'm going to talk about another county for 88 counties of murders in Ohio. At this point, I have 87 more counties to go. Man, that's a lot. I want to talk about a case that I actually remember hearing about at the time that it happened back in 2005. I remember this case because I remember being shocked and horrified about it when I heard what happened. I will warn you, this case could make you sick to your stomach. I will not be getting too graphic with details, and I will not be spending too much time on it. This case happened in August of 2005 in Dayton, Ohio which is in Montgomery County. Cities like Inglewood, Trotwood, Brookville, and Clayton are parts of Montgomery County also. 
I've already talked a little bit about the city of Dayton in episode 2 of season 1. Dayton is a decent sized city and is the home of Dayton Dragons minor league baseball team. Dayton is also the home of Wright Pat Air Force Base and the University of Dayton, Ohio. One day in August of 2005, China Arnold and her boyfriend Tyrell Tolley had gone in one of the local hospitals. They had their 28-day-old baby, Paris Tolley, with them. 28-day-old Paris was lifeless. She was pronounced dead upon entering the hospital. China and Tyrell said that they had found the baby cold and stiff with burn marks on the body. There would be an investigation into the death of 28-day-old Paris Tolley. Paris died from high heat internal injuries. China Arnold was arrested. China and her children lived with Tyrell Tolley in a housing complex in Dayton. China did have a criminal history. She had been convicted of abduction in 2000 and forgery in 2002. I'd like to know what that abduction charge was about. Here is something that is a little surprising. China was actually released from jail due to the lack of evidence that she had done anything wrong to cause her baby's death. Law enforcement did not drop the case. They found more evidence and China Arnold was arrested for a second time in November of 2006. A person could sit in county jail for a year or so before going to trial. A lot can happen with a person while in jail. Women in jail are different than men with how they act while they are locked up. China got into a jailhouse romance and fell in love with her cellmate, Linda Williams. Linda would testify that China had confessed to what happened to 28-day-old baby Paris. China had been drinking one day. China said that she had been drinking so much that she had been close to blackout drunk. China and Tyrell had been arguing over who was the father of baby Paris. This must have been one bad fight. I don't really know what all happened here, but for some unknown horrible reason, China had put 28-day-old Paris into a microwave and then turned on the microwave. Medical experts say that Paris had to have been in the microwave for at least two minutes. They say that Paris died after temperatures hit 107 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit, which caused internal injuries. This is an absolutely horrifying way for any child to die. I don't understand how any parent could do something like this to their child. In February of 2008, China was in court. Then something big happened. Tyrell testified that their son was the one who found Paris and had taken Paris out of the microwave. Tyrell also testified that a neighbor boy was the one who had put Paris into the microwave. The next part also surprised me. The judge of that trial declared a mistrial. Prosecutors failed to get a conviction, but there would be a second trial. The prosecutors found the mother of the boy who Tyrell accused of putting baby Paris into the microwave. The mother of the boy testified that her and her son was not at the housing complex the day of Paris's death. On September the 8th of 2008, China Arnold was convicted of aggravated murder and sentenced to life without parole. Now you might be thinking that I'm done with this. China is in prison and never get out. But you'd be wrong. On November 5th of 2010, the Ohio 2nd District Court reversed 
the original court decision. This was based on misconduct and also the fact that the court did not allow a material witness to testify for the defense. This lady gets all kinds of breaks here. This does not mean that China went free and that this was all over with. There was a third trial. The third trial happened on May 13th of 2011. The lawyers said that the evidence pointed more to Tyrell Tolley, not China. I don't understand how a lawyer could fight and argue for someone who'd done something like this, but I guess that's their job. China was convicted again and still had a life sentence without parole. China's lawyer did not give up. September 2013, China's lawyers requested a new trial. In December of 2013, the second district court upheld the original court decision. There was another appeal made regarding the life sentence that was handed down. China's lawyers were questioning the fact of double jeopardy. They wanted a new sentencing trial. In May of 2014, the court decided not to take up the appeal, which I think is good. As parents, we're supposed to look out for our kids and keep them out of harm's way. What she did was absolutely horrifying. I mean, it's just horrifying. Thank you for joining me, your host, Bill Swafford, for this episode of Murderers in Ohio. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. That way you can keep up with 88 counties and murderers in Ohio. We got the devil on the road in Ohio.